Psalms 13. Um, I've entitled this on being a peace church in a Constantinian world. The idea being that uh, in a Constantinian Christianity, when Emperor Constantine became a Christian, there was a fusion between the church and the state. And often we've confused then our allegiance to Christ and Christianity and the church and our allegiance to the state. And I think if we read properly uh, Romans 13, if we see it in light of Paul's overall theology, we understand that Paul is telling the followers of Jesus how to live in the belly of the beast, the belly of the beast of Rome. And how in that terrible situation, Nero, we think, is already emperor, how to witness to God's love. And so the way we're going to do this, obviously, we don't bow the knee to the state, to Nero, to the empire, whatever empire we might be part of. We reject this empire idolatry. And we're committed to an active pacifism, an active peace. And so this is our most radical task and maybe our most subversive. We're to live in communities where, you know, even Paul, if we think of the enmity that drove Paul to, before he was a Christian, to a kind of murderous violence, that kind of enmity, that kind of violence... Uh, is overcome in Christ. And just as the passage we read in Sunday school this morning, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, are joined together in one fellowship in equality. And we're to witness then to a genuine peace in a violent world. And so we say no to empire. We are not, uh, as Christians, to invest our lives in salvation by the state. We do not seek to exercise power in the way that empire exercises power in the way that the nation state. We do not offer unquestioning allegiance to the state. And so a president who requests our total allegiance in the United States or to the United States of America has to understand that as Christians we've already pledge our allegiance to Christ. That doesn't mean we can't be good citizens, but we do not worship empire and we do not allow the empire to shape our ethics. So Jesus' response to his disciples, you know, when they wanted power, they wanted to sit one on his left and one on his right in heaven. He says, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lorded over them. And their great ones are tyrants over them. But not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. We are a community, a a society of servants. We are uh, committed to a subordinate relationship to one another. We do not participate in the use of the sword or violence on behalf of the powers of the world, but we're citizens of a different kingdom. And this is then the context, I think, that Paul is working out in chapter 12 and 13. 
So we say no as Christians to any kind of violent resistance. We don't let let the empire, we don't let the state determine our means of resistance. We do not become evil in seeking to overcome evil. You know, the danger is that we ourselves will become part of the problem. And we want to be free from the evil and the idolatry and the allegiance that the state would require of us. Um, We need to be free to point out the evils of our nation. That's what Larry was saying today. You know, we need to do that. We need to be salt and light. Uh, But we can't do that if we are participants in the evil. We can't do that if we've rendered ourselves useless as salt and light. So we say no to empire. We say no to violent resistance. But we do say yes, we are communities of salt and light. We are communities of resistance. And this is the apocalyptic aspect of Paul's picture that the church is breaking in Christ has broken into world history God has set up an alternative kingdom the church and that kingdom then uh, is the way in which God is saving the world it is the conquering kingdom as displayed in Revelation and so God is going to heal the brokenness the violence he's going to bring justification A real world making of things right through this alternative kingdom, through us, the people who share that peace, and we share that peace with all the families of the earth. So as Christians, certainly we will continue to be subject to the historical process in which there will be armies and swords, and uh, but that's not our calling. We're not in the business of wielding the sword. We're called to reconciling ministry. We're called to bring peace. We're called to bring healing. And that's the Christian vocation. That's the cross that we bear. And Paul then, if we read chapter 12 and 13 together, distinguishes between the government function and Christian function. They're completely separate realms. In 1219, where the believer is told, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. And then 13.4, when he's talking about the state, not bearing the sword in vain, and the state is pictured as a minister of God and an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. We recognize reading these two passages together that one can conclude the function of government is not the function exercised by Christians. Those are two separate things. The righteousness of God has entered the world. It's exposed unrighteousness. And if we participate in the violence, unrighteousness, darkness of the world, how can we be messengers of the gospel of peace and light. We're called, Paul says, never to pay back evil for evil to anyone. We're to bless those who persecute us and never to take a revenge. We're to leave room for the wrath of God. Our love is always to be without hypocrisy. That is, there's no 
you know, two sides to this thing. All evil is abhorred. We cling to what is good. So Romans 13, 8 to 10, which I'm going to read here, calls us back to the supreme law of love, which does no harm or wrong to a neighbor. And in verse 11 and following, it calls believers to holiness and purity, even though this beastly Rome rules, Paul is giving us a means to negotiate this situation. Um, Owe nothing, from chapter 13, 8 to 12. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Doing this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. So the instructions to the Christians in Rome... Yes, they are to be subject to a government, but understand it's a government in which they have no voice. They are to be about the business not of governing, but they are about the business of loving the neighbor, fulfilling the law, not involving themselves in darkness or violence or deeds of darkness. We do not wear the armor of Caesar. We do not wear the armor of America. We wear the armor of the light of Christ. The text cannot mean that Christians are called to do military or police service. Certainly at the time in history that Paul wrote his letter, most Christians would have been Jews. They would have been slaves. They would have been they wouldn't have been eligible to bear the sword for the government. And we know that the church has a solid history of pacifism up until the 4th century AD. And that's when Emperor Constantine was converted. And then Christianity became the official state religion. And until then, the church was persecuted and held little power it would not have concerned itself with the functions of war, policing, or government. And more than that, in the New Testament, the two cosmos system, it's here, you know, Paul's talking about a kingdom of darkness in which God, yes, he reigns in that kingdom and he orders that kingdom, but we're not of that kingdom of darkness, we're of the kingdom of light. In John, there is the two cosmos system, the cosmos of darkness. You know, it is made up of the political rulers, Rome, the political rulers in Israel, and even the religious rulers. But Christ exposes the evil. He is facing the principalities and powers by confronting them. That's the story that we encounter in the life of Christ. 
Paul uses similar language to that of John. The world of darkness is passing away. Why is it passing away? Because there is an alternative kingdom with an alternative purpose that is penetrating the darkness. The darkness is being penetrated by the people of the light. And we then are the bearers of the light. And that's the business that we're about. That's all that we do. We do not concern ourselves with the kingdom of the darkness. So Romans 13 is a teaching about our relationship to the state. But understand we need to set it in a larger context. That there's a very strong strand of gospel teaching which sees secular government as the sovereignty of Satan. Luke 4, 5 to 8, when the devil shows Jesus all the kingdoms of this world and he says that you can have all these kingdoms. They've all been handed to me and I'll give them to whomever I wish. Jesus doesn't challenge this claim of Satan. He doesn't challenge that Satan can indeed dispose of all the kingdoms of the world. Paul's own teaching in 2 Corinthians 4.4 Satan is the god of this world. In Ephesians 2.2 He is the prince of the power of the air. In 1 John 5.19 He says the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. The prophet Hosea condemns in Israel and says that these powers that Israel has set up, they're not of God. They have set up kings in Hosea 8.4, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not. Rome is pictured in Revelation as a blasphemous beast. You know, think of, compare Romans 13 and Revelation 13. We have a picture here authority of over uh, of a government with authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation while clearly this isn't God's nation this is a nation of uh, people that are blasphemous they arrogant arrogantly blasphemes against heaven and makes war on the saints and overcomes them so we need to be able to point out and I mean this in all due respect, to the beast, to the powers of the air, to the kingdom of Satan, and we need to be able to distinguish ourselves from that kingdom. Revelation 13, 56, There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is, those who dwell in heaven. And you can find similar references in Daniel 7 and 8. So how do we relate to the government? Last week we talked that God does not ordain the government. He doesn't say, "Ah, Emperor Hirohito, I appoint you Emperor of Japan. Emperor Nero, I appoint you Emperor of Rome. Donald Trump, I appoint you you President of the United States. God does not ordain that sort of leadership. But the picture and the word that Paul uses, he orders these systems. 
Uh, he orders the powers. It doesn't mean that he necessarily approves of them or approves of what they do. I use the example, you know, a librarian orders the books at the school. She doesn't necessarily approve of all the books. A teacher, you know, will have many students in his class, but doesn't necessarily approve of all that they say and do. In an army, there may be many soldiers, but the drill sergeant doesn't necessarily approve of all of those. And so, too, God orders. He does not take the responsibility for the existence of the rebellious powers that be, nor for their shape or their identity or what they do. They're already here, but he does have sovereign control over them. In his sovereign permissive will, he orders the powers. He brings them into line. And this is true of all governments, whether they be the governments of dictators or tyrants or constitutional democracies or bandits or warlords, to the extent to which they exercise real sovereign control. And so as Christians, we accept the subject, our subjection to government. But in, in, even though we subject ourselves, that doesn't mean that we're obedient We don't bow the knee. We don't drive the nails into the hands of Christ if so ordered. We don't behead Paul, you know, the apostle, if should we be ordered. We do not do evil. Um, We maintain our moral independence and judgment. And so Romans 13 is not teaching blind obedience. And this is what I talked about last week. Uh, Romans makes no affirmative moral judgment in regard to any government. In fact, as we said, Jesus' resurrection defied the Roman government. They said, Jesus, you be dead and silent and you stay in the grave. And when Jesus rose from the dead and he rolled the stone away, he broke the Roman seal, right? Right? He did an act of civil disobedience in being raised from the dead. And the church is founded in this act of civil disobedience. The church is a community that by its very nature stands over and against the powers that be in our resurrection power. That is the belief in the resurrection defies the ultimate power of state. Defies the power of the sword. Paul and Jesus and the apostles, they all submit to martyrdom and death, but that doesn't mean that they agree with those who wielded the sword against them. That just means they submitted to it. And in that submission, it was a revolutionary, subordinate kind of overturning of power. It's an overturning of power from the bottom, not the top. The way that we would carry out a revolution, you know, outside of Christ is, well, let's get some machine guns and let's get some swords and let's, you know, have a revolution. That describes the American revolution. But the Christian revolution is from the bottom. It defies the powers through resurrection. And so... Most Christians believe that, you know, German believers should not have obeyed Hitler 
and have participated in the slaughter of the Jews. Serbian Christians should not have participated in ethnic cleansing. Just because your government tells you to do something doesn't mean you do it. And American Christians should not participate in the killings ordered by our state. Christians are not called to blind, unquestioning obedience, but rather to discernment. Now, we're not called to rebellion. You know, the, one interpretation of Romans 13 to say, well, you know, Paul is saying you obedient to a proper government and disobedient and you have a revolution. If it, no, that's not... The, 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 uh, it's not like Christians should obey one government and rebel against the other. It's true. Paul's laying down a complete, you know, unqualified mandate. There could have been no worse government than that of Nero. He's going to kill Paul. The Roman government's the one that killed Christ. So God does not ordain a particular government. But the idea isn't that he ordains some governments and not others. That is, you know, maybe as long as a government meets a certain minimum set of requirements, then as Christians will say, okay, well, we'll go along with that government. If they provide health care, they provide education and justice and, you know, racial tolerance and care for refugees. And that government then will say, may properly claim divine sanction. No, we're not, we're not agreeing to that. We're not saying that if a government fails to adequately fulfill our idea of what a government should do, that it's then the duty of Christians to have a revolution, to rise up in violent revolt. Uh, should Christians, you know, have participated in the American Revolution? Taxation without representation. I can't see that the New Testament justifies it. I can't see that Romans 13 justifies it. I mean, how do we just say, who's to say how bad is too bad? Who's to judge how bad a government can be and still be good and not worthy of rebellion? You know, think of uh, Saddam Hussein's government. It provided health care, it provided law and order, it provided education, it picked up, they picked up the garbage. Uh, and then when we destroyed that government, look what happened. So, Romans 13 is just the opposite of just rebellion. Nothing in Romans 13 justifies rebellion, even against the worst form of government. So I'm saying two very hard things here. I'm saying neither do we simply blindly obey, nor do we revolt. But it's a subordination that in that subordination, nonetheless, will have the long-term of effect of overcoming that government. This is what Paul is, you know, this is the church that accomplishes this. When Paul wrote to the Christian church in Rome, Rome was ruled by the worst of pagan governments. And he doesn't tell Christians, okay, you guys need to organize and rebel uh, he doesn't tell Onesimus, you know, get together your brother's slaves and lead a slave rebellion. 
He doesn't tell the women in the church, you know, you guys need to organize. Is Paul for slavery? No, he's not for slavery. Is Paul for unequal treatment? No, he's not. Is Paul for oppression? No, he's not. But the point is that the church is going to undo these systems not through participating in violence, not through oppression, but that's the kingdom of God that is being established in which this new order will displace. You know, God didn't make human government through some new creative intervention. This is the church. This describes the church. And so ever since the creation of human beings, there have been hierarchy and authority and violence in human society. In this kingdom, the church is not to participate that. We're not to, you know, participate in power and authority and domination and disrespect for human dignity, racism, oppression, slavery. And in those systems in which there is violence, this is simply the picture of unredeemed humanity. As Christians, we participate in a different kingdom in which those things are set aside. And as believers in relationship to the state, we recognize the sovereignty of God, that God is the ordering power, even behind evil government, even in all human affairs. But it does not mean that Christians are in any way to acquiesce to evil or to fight evil with violence. The authority of government is not self-justifying. You know, whoever happens to be there, then they get to tell us what to do. Whatever government exists, certainly it's ordered by God, but it's not ordained by God. These governments are still made up of sinful men and women. And we cannot say that what a government does or calls its citizens to do will be good. You know, Paul here describes then the role of the state in verse 13. For those who hold no terror, for those who do right, but for those who do wrong... The state bears the sword. And he uses the language here that uh, these rulers are ministers of God when they devote themselves to their assigned godly function. What is that? Paul lists it. Collecting taxes, rewarding good, and punishing evil. They are ministers of God in verse 6 by virtue of the fact that they devote themselves to doing good and righteous things. And Paul says, render, you know, Jesus said this originally, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax, in verse 7 of 13. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Think here of Jesus taking, you know, they said, should we pay taxes to this evil Roman government? You remember Jesus took the coin and he said, well, whose inscription is upon it? And they said, well, it's Caesar's. And Jesus says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. And of course, the ultimate question is whose inscription, whose image is on you? And to whom do you belong? To Caesar or Christ? To America or Christ? 
Render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's. Render unto America those things that are America. But render unto God and Christ those things that are His. And so Christians are involved in solving the darkness and the evil through participation in a new political order. The church is a political order, right? It's a kingdom with a king. A new kingdom, a new economics, a new culture. And Christians should never blindly obey or a government or acquiesce to evil. We are to change the world through revolutionary subordination. An odd combination. Revolutionary subordination. For the Christian, subordination is a revolutionary act in that it is a way in which we can share God's patience with a worldly system that we ultimately reject. The believer accepts subordination because he is following the example of Christ who accepted subordination and humiliation. Paul says in Philippians 2.5 and following, Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance of man, as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We are called to take up our cross and follow Jesus, specifically, I think, in regard to our relationship to the principalities and powers of this world. Subordinate disobedience is itself a participation in the character of God's victorious patience toward the rebellious powers. We subject ourselves to government because it was in so doing that Jesus, our Lord, revealed and achieved God's victory. Therein we participate in the faith and the perseverance of the saints. So, this is why you pay taxes. This is why you subordinate yourself, Paul says, because you're God's servants. But we then serve ultimately a higher king and a higher purpose that is being worked out through our subordinate revolutionary participation in the church and then a willing patience with the rulers of this world. Let's see.